Welcome to Mere Utterance, the podcast where we explore small stories and the big impact they have on our lives. This week, we sat down with Dr. Isabel Kingsley to discuss her journey as a STEM educator, researcher, and lifelong learner. An expert in science communication and education, Isabel leads research projects that explore the barriers women and girls face in STEM participation and investigates how to overcome these challenges. In this episode, we gain insight into Isabel's personal and professional journey, delving into the meaning behind labels of all kinds and exploring everything from doing science to embracing your inner dork. Hey. (laughs) Hey. Thank you so much for joining us and for coming and being on our podcast it's really lovely to have you pleasure I'm excited I'm I'm honored oh I'm we are both very excited and honored as well um so I want to start off with a question that I usually ask which is how would you introduce yourself at this present point in time that is a very that is that the hardest question (laughs) I hope it is (laughs) yes I can make it the hardest question question I would introduce myself as a self-proclaimed dork. Oh, I love that. Who happens to be a researcher mm-hmm. in a serious job, um, but still super dorky. I am a friend to heaps of really awesome people. When I say heaps, I don't mean that many. <laughs> But they're pretty, an appropriate amount of really awesome people. I'm a daughter and a sister and a partner. um, And I'm reluctantly going to say stepmom. Love that. Um, Not because I'm reluctant about (laughs) being that, but of using that label. Why? Um, Because it's so... Loaded. loaded yeah it's so loaded it really is. and it's new so it's like mm. so that's why I'm like this is me right now but this is me right now not knowing necessarily who I am right how is it stepping into that new label potentially it's fun cool and it's exciting and it's hard right and it's confronting it's a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I said reluctantly. <laughs> um, Isn't that the case with both things? We sort of go and we're like, oh my gosh, wait, there's all of this stuff attached. And yes. How do I discover myself and my place here? Yes. At this point. Yeah. Right. So Isabel is just like a combination of random things. I think that's a beautiful answer. Thank you. Mm. Yeah. The first thing that you said, I'm going to hone in on. You said that you're a self-proclaimed dork. (laughs) Well, Uh, I've come to terms with it. (laughs) Okay. Over the years. (laughs) Over the years. And with my partner just constantly telling me I'm such a dork, but in like the most loving way. Mm. Yeah. Um, Because... I'm not very serious. Mm. Most of the time I like to just be a goofball and say silly things and act in a silly way. But I'm still like a little bit nerdy. I actually don't really know what the definition of dork is. Like I don't really know if there's a true definition of dork. But I think it's someone who's like a little bit nerdy, but a little bit silly and like 
daggy and doesn't take themselves seriously. I love that. Mm. Is that needed for your particular profession as well? So you said that you're a doc who also happens to be in research. Mm. Do you feel like you need an element of playfulness or silliness in the line of work that you do? I think I've, I've always had it. I started off my career being um, a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, I started teaching when I was seven. Tell me about that. I would teach my brother. <laughs> this is something that you and I actually have in common because when we had holidays, I'm an oldest sister. Yeah. And whenever we had holidays, it was, right, I am a teacher, you are the students, and I will set you homework. And Did you write homework? Yes. Did you write assignments and yeah. then you made your like brother... Yeah. Do it, and then they you marked me. it. Yes. <laughs> Who likes marking? <laughs> I didn't like marking when I was a teacher, but at, at as a kid, you like, like loving the, the marking. <laughs> my poor brother just had to put up with it, right? Because I was the oldest as well. Um, so I started teaching when I was seven, and then after university, I was a teacher, a primary and high school teacher for a few years. And so you have to be. You don't have to be silly but or playful or any of those things, but I found it just helped. It just helped, um, helped me connect with the students in a different way and on that level, on their level. Mm. And after that, I was in museum education. So, you know, like it was a very creative and innovative kind of role. So like the, the, the playfulness carried through, carried through. How did that going back to teaching? It was primary and high school. Mm. How did playfulness help? You say it can, helps you connect with students in what way? And in what way is that different for primary and for high school? Ah, Cause uh-huh. I find I'm also happen to be teaching at the moment and mm-hmm. playfulness helped me in a very different way with younger students as it does with older students. Yes. I think that with the younger students, they like, like I have the best and worst dad jokes. (laughs) Okay. And then I laugh at my own jokes because they're hilarious. Mm -hmm. Um, Or so I like to Naturally, yes. (laughs) Yeah. So, So the kids like that. You know, they like that you can be funny and silly and giggly with them and joke around with them because it lets them open up to you in in that way and they can be more themselves. Right. With high school students, I like to tease them, as in, like, make fun of them a little bit. You know, (laughs) not in a bad way, just, you know, that kind of, like, you know, bagging your buddy kind of way. Um, I do exactly the same thing and it works a ton. Total treat. It works yeah. because they they're like okay you're not you're not the superior that I can't relate to or that doesn't get me or that I can't communicate with. Um, they're like yeah I can I can come to you and like have a joke and you know just be myself and chill out a little bit. Yeah, nice. So it just brings everything down to like a level that everyone is kind of more comfortable with. I think. Mm. And so, how long were you a teacher? And then you said you went into museum work. So, what was the shift between teaching and museum? And this was in Canada too, right? Yes, this was in Canada. That's where my 
exotic accent. It's <laughs> very exotic. I have been questioning. <laughs> very exotic accent. Um, yes. Yeah, so that that was in Canada. I grew up in Canada. Um, did my studies in Canada and mm. um, started teaching there. Uh, I taught for four years before I decided that that wasn't for me. Wow. How did you come to that conclusion that it wasn't for you? It was. Um, it was a gradual, not that gradual, I guess. After four years, it wasn't that. It was That's pretty. Four quick. years in your twenties is quite <laughs> it a long feels time like it's forever. It's, yeah. Uh, but I just didn't feel like the education system was a place for me. I value learning, um, and I value hard work, and I value things like perseverance and dedication and all of those great qualities and those um those things that we need in life those life skills and I just felt like the education system wasn't doing that for young people Mm -hmm. um and instead it was all about um standardizing courses and content and assessments and tests And um, it wasn't necessarily about the students and their learning. It was just about the school and how well the school looked. Um, It was about uh, success no matter what, but success didn't actually mean success. Success just meant passing students to pass them. And um, the straw that broke the camel's back was when I was asked to pass a student who had never attended my class. Wow. And I said, that's it. Wow. I'm out. So I left. Wow. <laughs> I was like, this is not for me. Now, I can't say that that's how the education system in Canada is everywhere. It could have been circumstantial. It could have been my school. It could have been, but that was my experience. And that was not the experience that I wanted. So I left. Seems to be... A widespread issue. Yes, yes. If you've ever heard of um, Gabby Stroud, no. she wrote an excellent book called Teacher. Okay. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. She's from New South I Wales. Don't know the author, uh, uh, but I know the book. Yes, right. yes. So she's from New South Wales, just down down the coast of um, New South Wales, and her experience was. Very similar, probably worse. And she writes about her entire teaching experience in this book. And she left. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you see that approach to teaching and learning affect the students in a serious way? Or does it just whittle away at you as an educator? I think that we were just teaching the, the kids the wrong things. Like, I just think... You know, that that student who never attended my class, we taught her that you can do nothing and you will be rewarded in in life. And that's not life. Like, if you don't show up at work, you're not going to get paid. You're going to get fired. So I felt like we were doing them a disservice. But I don't know if I really saw the impact of what we were doing at the time. Mm. I just, I could see the impact that it would probably have. So you quit teaching mm-hmm. and you went straight into museum work? Yes. In Canada? Oh. Mm-hmm. How, 
How? What was it that made you decide museum now? It was random. It was... I love it. (laughs) Yeah, so many things are random. (laughs) (laughs) Life is a bit random. So I was thinking, I need to get out. This isn't for me. Um, And... But it wasn't for me, it wasn't that I wanted to leave because I didn't like teaching or education. Like, that's what I actually wanted to do. I wanted wow. to teach, and I felt like I wasn't had to leave doing teaching that. To, to teach. Wow. I had to leave teaching to teach. So I randomly saw this job advertised at um, a, muse- a science and technology museum in Ottawa, where I lived. And so I applied thinking, like... There's no chance I'm going to get this. But then I got an interview and then I got the job and it was wow. the best. Wow. The best. Like I got to do all of the stuff that I loved about teaching. I got to come up with the coolest lessons and sessions about like science and technology and engineering and I wasn't limited by a curriculum and I didn't have to test or assess my students. I, they just came to the museum and I felt like I was just literally playing with them, playing and learning together. It was, you know, I got to be experiential in my approaches. Um, it was so much fun. And I thought, this is what I want to do with my life. Love that. Mm. What did you learn there about educating and learning? Because the, the, it's such a juxtaposition, right? You go from standardized testing and kind of spoon feeding, very behavioralist, you know, teaching to problem based learning and experiential learning, and that's a big difference. I'd say the biggest thing I learned while I'm working in museums. Um, And I did this, I did this for three years in Canada, moved to Australia um, and continued to do that same job for another seven years. So I did museum education for about 10 years. And one of the things that I learned, which changed me, was um, that you can only really learn something if you're doing it and especially true with science if you want to learn science and learn about science and the nature of science then you need to do science so it is about experiential learning it is about students driving their own learning and experimenting and playing and just exploring and trying different things and doing real science because that's what science is. Science isn't about just like this linear path of I have, you know, I'm going to do this first and then this second and this third. It's like messy and you just try one thing and it doesn't work and you try another. And yes, there are processes. Of course there are and methodologies and, and, all of these things come into the rigor of it, but it's really, um, you just explore and you drive your own learning through your interests and motivations. Mm. And so 
that's what I learned from doing museum education is you just need to do science, like real science, if you want people to know what science is all about. Did you learn that vicariously through the students or was that the point at which you started really experiencing science through doing science? I... I had I had the most amazing opportunity to work on this project um, where this all happened for me, all this like, you know, the penny dropped, like the, 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 aha, the moment. aha moment. <laughs> I was going to say the eureka moment. Uh, oh, <laughs> that one. awesome. Let's go that. Um, was when I was working on this project called the Mars Lab. And it's funny because I had been doing museum education for probably five, six years by that time. And I was doing a lot of that experiential stuff, but not like up to a certain level. But what I didn't know was that there was more. So I think it's because I had never really done science myself. Mm. So I recently did a talk where I start my talk by saying that I was a science teacher who didn't really understand science. And that was because I didn't, because I had never done science myself. But when I worked on this project called the Mars Lab, I got to work with these brilliant scientists from around the world, but mostly from here in Sydney, uh, astrobiologists, who uh, study the origins of life here on Earth to try to understand if there is life out in the universe. And if so, where is it and how did it start? And so I got to work with these scientists and I got to go out in the field and um, work with geologists and biochemists and astronomy, uh, astronomers. <laughs> I was literally experts. going to say astronomists and then I'm like, that's not a word. <laughs> it's late on like a weeknight so my brain is dead. So anyways, for the first time in my life, and I have a science degree, like I have a four... Yep, four-year science degree from a university. And I had literally never experienced doing real science until I got to work with these people. And then from there, I built these education programs around Mars and astrobiology. And that was when I'm like, oh, we need to get these kids not just doing like hands-on stuff, but like really doing real science like the scientists at NASA mm. and at, you know, the Astrobiology Center. Like, that's what we need to get these kids to do, the real, real stuff with the real people who are, like, experts in the field. Because that, literally, that's when my penny dropped, oh, this is how science actually works. Mm. And that was the only way that we could translate that to students was to get them to do that as well. How did students receive that is part one of the question. Mm. And then part two, do you think the way that education is heading, do you think it's going to go more along that path? Uh, Part one, (laughs) the students love it. They freaking love it because no one's telling them this is what you need to do, and this is how you need to do it. They literally, they're the ones asking their own questions. Mm-hmm. So you give them a, a bit of a frame. You're like, hey, we're, 
we're going to, you know, do some research around, you know, life on Mars and whether maybe there's water. Is there water on Mars? But that's the frame. Like, you do whatever you want with that. And then they come up with their own scientific questions and how they're going to answer that question, what experiments they're going to do to answer that question. They go out and they look at, they looked at, year nines looked at academic literature, found all this um, interesting information that then they used to design their own experiment to look for water evidence of water on Mars, they were actually talking about um, science using terms like, we found evidence of, not we found that there's water on Mars, but you know they were changing their language because they understood by doing this that the information they collected and the data they collected in their experiments was like not 100% certain. There was a degree of uncertainty and they were excited to do it. And then they presented their findings to real scientists in that field, like experts in the field, world-leading experts. And they were so nervous, but they were so excited because they knew their stuff. Right. And, um, yeah, they, they, the students that I worked with just absolutely loved it. But are we going, is that the direction that the education system is going? I would love to say yes, and in some places, yes, but in most places, no, and definitely not in Australia, not right now. Wow. But who knows, maybe there's still hope to change things. Totally. And I think that education doesn't stop or isn't confined to the school or no. the university for that matter. No. Like, we, yes, we learn at school, but so much of the learning that happens is at home, in the schoolyard, in the, you know, on the streets, um, at grandma and grandpa's, like, everywhere. And um, especially in today's world and in the future, it's going to be all about upskilling and reskilling to um, to keep up with the workforce and to keep up with technology and the change. Like, the world is just changing so quickly all the time um, that, it's, yeah, education is not just something you do and you stop at, like, 18 or at 25. It's going to be... You're going to be learning for the rest of your life. That's so true, and it's such a good point. To use your United students as an example, that's where the benefit of instilling critical thinking is so crucial because maybe they won't remember all of the project, but the you know neuropathways behind questioning deeply and investigating and backing yourself in you know inquiry is so so important throughout your whole life as a lifelong learner yeah yeah those are the skills the core competency skills or the the 21st century skills whatever the curriculum calls them though those are the key skills that you need throughout your life for everything not just education related but for everything 
So speaking of upskilling and being a lifelong learner, your journey didn't stop at museum education. No. Uh, an opportunity arose. <laughs> Random. Random. Love it. Uh, one of the women that I was working with on this um, awesome Mars Lab project was a researcher um, at the University of New South Wales, and she saw my curiosity um, throughout the project in trying to assess what the students were learning and how they were learning and are we are we doing our job properly and like how does this all affect the students and what's the impact and I always had all these questions that I wanted to find out more about and she's like you're you're a researcher I'm like no I'm not and she's like yeah you are and you should do a PhD with me and I said no thank you <laughs> Like, literally, I laughed and I said, no, thank you. And she's like, okay, well, think about it. And then she asked me again and again for two years. For two years? For two years. And I was like... That's persistent of her for two years. Well, yeah. And I was like, no, no, I don't need to, I don't need a PhD to do what I'm doing. I'm not a researcher. I'm an educator. Like, no. And then... She sent me on this amazing field trip to the Pilbara and um, with these world-leading geologists, scientists, and astronomists. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's a joke if you didn't hear the beginning of this podcast. (laughs) Astronomologist. (laughs) And and when I came back, I said, I want to do this I want to be a researcher and she said yeah that's why I sent you so you change your mind and <laughs> so you were I doing the science again I was right? doing the science and I'm like this is so cool you're at the cutting edge of knowledge and developing knowledge or like evolving knowledge um and it was really exciting to me and I thought yeah I want to do this I want to be part of that so I enrolled in a PhD, and and here I am, like six years later, and I'm, I'd say, pretty much done. My thesis is being examined right now, so so exciting. And what I'm a, a researcher. Like that's what I do now, and it's awesome. Yeah, that's wild. Mm. But at what point did you? take on the label of I'm a researcher now because at the beginning it was like kind of like the stepmom thing like that is a loaded word I'm not a researcher when does that change for you uh you know it did take a while it was like the stepmom thing it was like I'm not a researcher because I don't know what I'm doing. Like, <laughs> this is not me. And I remember talking to my my one of my my friends um, at uni who was also doing her PhD, and she was like, "Yeah, you're like you're a scientist. You're a researcher." I'm like, "No, I'm not," because I was writing a biography about like a little you know when you present at a conference and you have to write your little biography. And I was describing myself as an educator who was doing a PhD who was like, and she's like, just say you're a scientist or a researcher. And I'm like, but I'm not. Mm. I don't associate with that word because I don't know what I'm doing. So for you, a researcher meant that you need, needed to know what you were doing? 
I guess so. It's like when you associate, when you put a label on yourself, like I am this, like I am a dork because I know how to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I didn't feel like I knew how to be a researcher. So I wasn't that, but I was an educator because I knew how to do that. So I guess like your, my level of comfort with the role or the label um oh my god and that's why I'm struggling with like my label right now because there's like this lack of confidence in like my ability to be it or do it what's well, uncharted territory right yeah and it was like that with being a researcher for a while mm. but now I embrace it it's also in my title so it's like <laughs> I am that. (laughs) Yeah. I really empathize in terms of being a writer in that I was so hesitant to call myself a writer, Mm. not because I didn't know how to write, but I think because my writing wasn't good enough or it's not as good as how these people are writing. And I guess I'm not getting paid like these people should be. There's a societal definition around a lot of these labels, like what it is to be a researcher or a writer or a stepmom or a dork. You know, we said at the beginning, what even is a dork? We're not quite sure. (laughs) sure. But you kind of define it yourself as you go. Mm. And for me, putting on the label of I'm a writer was more about backing myself than anything else yeah it's about that confidence because then you are that and you identify as that um but that's because you're confident enough to to label yourself as and identify as that Mm. whatever it is role Mm. yeah that's illuminating because i didn't really know why i didn't like that stepmom label you're right though in saying that it's really loaded it is loaded but it's my lack of confidence that's making me struggle to accept or to not to accept but to take it on why the lack of confidence because i don't know what i'm doing (laughs) does anyone (laughs) it's like but what is it like what is the role of a stepmom because it's so fluid and it's so circumstantial and it's so individual I guess so is uh, is a mum but like is this a label that you have to navigate differently because there are more people involved or more people within your inner circle with this label yeah yes probably as well Mm. yeah Because at least for like something, at least for a vocational label, it's sort of a case of, well, I can step into that. And if you tell me no, that's like, (laughs) that's your problem. I'm going to be a researcher. Yeah. Whereas with more personal labels, like I'm a partner um, or I'm a fiance, I'm going to be a wife. It's like, oh, wait, what? Like, yes. that's something completely different. Yes. And then there's like, well, if I call myself that, if I label myself that, but do the kids label me that? Or does my partner label me that? Or what about the mum? 
Or what about the grandparents? Like there are just there's like a world and you're late you can't just like take the freedom of like labeling yourself because it could be presumptuous. Although I don't think that that's my situation. I think in my situation it's more me that's like doubting my role within the complex little world that I'm in. Because you're still defining that role, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose every single involved party would have their own definition of that role as well. So it's a bit of a balancing act while you figure it out. Yeah. And it takes time to figure out. I've heard from many (laughs) that it takes five to seven years. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Well, I'll talk to you in five to seven years. When you say I have a stepmom and have like another few hundred labels to like (laughs) tuck on at the end. Aren't labels interesting? They really are. Yeah. But it's 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 cool to talk about those things because every time you talk about them, you like I had never thought of it in that way and I and I never realized that it was all about the confidence and the security in whatever you're doing, whether it's vocational or not, in your life. Is there a difference between the way you take on labels personally and the way you take on labels professionally? Hmm. I reckon there is. Um, Because... I think vocationally, you know, it's it's easy for us. The, it's easy for us to say, "I'm a researcher," or like, "I'm this" or "I'm that." But the the label is like, it's more. Although it's your label, it's a little bit removed. It's a little bit outside of you because it's what you do. It's not who you are. Or that's how I think about my vocation anyway. It's not who I am, it's what I do. Um, So it is that level, like that little bit removed from me. But a personal label, it's me. It's my identity. It's how I identify myself. So it's closer it's, in, it's like within me rather than a little bit outside of me, I think. Does that result in a greater amount of vulnerability to process with other people or with yourself? I would say yes, because if someone said to me, you're not a researcher, I'd go, well blank beep you like whatever you know (laughs) I don't care what you think but um if you know if I for example label myself as stepmom and then someone in that close circle that I really care about said no you're not then that hurts right like that's like oh in the heart twist the knife like break it everything it just it would hurt right so yeah you're putting yourself out there 
a lot more. You're making yourself vulnerable because if someone rejects that label, then they're they're rejecting you. Right. God. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like, oh, okay. So <laughs> apologies, but I was just re-watching all of the Sex in the City episodes. <laughs> because I love them and I watched them so long ago. Anyway, I was just re-watching and there's, you know, there's a lot of, um, like when people start begin a relationship and um, they don't know if like I'm the boyfriend or the girlfriend and like we haven't established that label yet and like what if I say blah 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 oh he's my boyfriend but like he doesn't think that yet because we haven't had that conversation you know all those all dancing those things around. yeah so you're dancing around until like. And then sometimes one person will go ahead and make that move and say that thing. And they either get a, oh, my God, do you think that? Oh, that's great. Or like, what? <laughs> yeah. I'm not your boyfriend. Or, I'm not your girl. I thought we were just having fun. And then it's like rejection, right? So um, there surely needs to be like an element of like levity to taking on and almost playing with personal labels, surely. Yeah. Because, like, we're, I mean, I mean, the way I see it, we're still figuring it out. Do you know what I mean? Like, as I'm figuring out what different labels I am, you know, as I start to take it on, I have to do so with a heart of lightness and curiosity and fun yeah otherwise it all just becomes heavy heavy scary scary right yeah yeah because those labels change throughout our lives we're always coming up with new labels because the old labels don't apply anymore totally so you're always like figuring out who you are what you are in relation to yourself, in relation to other people around you, um, all those things. So it's always heavy and it's always scary. But if you do approach it with a bit of a kind of light, playful approach, it would it probably makes it easier. I should take my own advice, hey? <laughs> <laughs> I think we'd all be good if we took your oh, advice. Damn. <laughs> Love it. Do you feel you're able to bring that same dorky playfulness into a new space easily? Or is that something that requires comfortability and confidence? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So actually, literally when I was getting out of the car coming here, my friend shared a little Instagram video with me where she was like, (laughs) there's two cockatoos. One of them is just screaming its head off. And then the, and then the camera turns and there's another cockatoo right there. And he goes, hello. (laughs) And my friend said, The first cockatoo is you when you're comfortable, like, for example, with me. (laughs) 
second cockatoo is when it's you, but when you're less comfortable, like with people that you're less less comfortable with, because you're like, I'm just all nice and kind and polite and you know very Canadian of me, of course. <laughs> Canadian. But, but yeah, like I need I need time. I need time to like I I can be a little bit playful when you first meet me, but mostly I will just be like. Kind and polite and lovely. I will, I think. Yes, can conf- can confirm. Um, but then, Tara in the background can also confirm. Tara She's can nodding confirm. her head very like yeah, yeah. vigorously. Yeah, I mean, when I first met Tara, like it was like that. You know, we we got to know each other when we were on um, at a conference in Arizona, and at first, like I didn't know Tara very very well, and so you know, can have conversations and all that stuff and be very friendly. But it's not until, like, I get comfortable that then, like, Tara got to see the real me. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, the playfulness does come out only when um, I do feel that level of comfort with people. Otherwise, I'm just, like, the the polite cockatoo. Hello. (laughs) I feel very much the same. I think in, in new social situations, I'll be very polite and I'll suss it all out. And then as soon as I start getting a bit sassy, I'm like, oh, okay, we've hit that level. (laughs) We've hit the level of comfortability now. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I love it. Um, So another question I wanted to ask you was, and maybe we've kind of danced around it, but not 100% reached it. Um, What are you currently curious about or what are you currently learning about? Well, I am... My, mm, so many things. It's so hard to answer. I mean, what am I curious about? Well, okay, so right now, to be completely honest, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to be when I grow up. <laughs> and I'm 41. Um, what a beautiful And answer. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Thank <laughs> goodness yeah so um like and I love my job love my job but it's like okay I love my job right now but it's not always I'm not always going to be in this job so what will be next and what am I going to be when I grow up in I don't know two three four years whatever um and I'm exploring that right now and I'm exploring that with curiosity because this is going to sound conceited but okay I can do anything. Yes. <laughs> yes. And not just me. I know it sounds conceited because no. I'm saying it about myself. No, it sounds confident. But everybody can do anything. Um, and it's that whole growth mindset, a growth, growth mindset. Like, if you can't do it, you can't do it yet. Oh. And if you really want to do it, then you can do it. So I can do anything. So what is it that I want to do? Mm. Um, and so I'm exploring that. I'm thinking, okay, well, I love research, so I really want to continue in research. Um, but I, you know, you think about the jobs you had before and what you liked about it and what you miss and what you really know you don't like. And, and, and then... Like, the world's your oyster. There are so many things that I could do. So that's what I'm exploring right now. That's beautiful. And mm. also spoken like a true lifelong learner. Mm. Because whatever I choose to do, and I've got a few ideas, 
I need to, there are areas that I need to develop. So like, yes, I'm, you know, I'm a researcher and so I know statistics, but there's so much more that I could, that I could know. Um, so I'm taking heaps of like statistics class online, you know, just Is that to, what you want to know at the moment, um, statistics? I, I want to just be like the most confident I can. Or at least, like, more confident than I am now with my statistics, statistics skills. Mm. <laughs> with this a little bit of a tongue twister. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Statistics <laughs> skills. Um, so, I like, just because it's so important as a researcher to have, like, good stat skills. So, I'm just trying to develop those to strengthen those, really. They're there, but I need to strengthen them. Um, and then things like, you know, a lot of my job right now is about... Um, I mean, I'm right now as a researcher, I'm working in gender equity. So mm. I research, um, I look at the barriers and how to dismantle or reduce the barriers to girls and women's participation in science, technology, engineering, and math. So in education, but mostly in the workplace. So we know that there aren't as many women in what we call STEM uh, jobs. Um, and we're just trying to find out why, um, how we can change that and what things work or work best to change that so that we have more of a gender equal STEM workforce, because that would benefit everyone, not just women, but everyone, Everyone, the workplaces, society, culture, the economy, you know, you name it. That's super hopeful. (laughs) Is there something in the interim that the small girl looking into STEM can do or aspire towards? Or is there something that the teacher within the public school sector, is there something that they can do to help push that trend towards parity? I think it's about just telling girls and boys and anyone, um, you can do anything. (laughs) You can do anything. Again, it's like, yeah, we might think that being a mechanic is for men, but if you like, you know, if you're curious about how things work, and you like fixing things and you like working with your hands and you like getting a little bit dirty because it's greasy and stuff, then be a mechanic. You can be anything. Um, and I think that we need to stop um, just thinking that certain things are for certain people and just be open to just be you. It does lead back to labels. And it does lead back to labels. Stereotypes are labels. And also being able to defy to defy stereotypes and define your own label. Yeah. Oh fuck. Isabel, thank you so much for joining us this evening. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you. You've given us and me as an educator a lot to mull over, read lifelong learning and educating and being able to do all the things so thank you so much yeah educator podcaster writer (laughs) all of 
of her things. <laughs> That's it. I'll pick them all. <laughs> but thank you so much. It's, it's been wonderful. Thank Thanks you. for having me. It's awesome. Thank you for joining us for this episode with Isabel. This conversation was deeply insightful and challenging on both a personal and professional level. Being able to reflect on the way in which we form, adopt and engage with labels is essential to our continued growth and evolution as people. The ability to introspect and understand what stage of life we are in as well as what is changing, allows us to thrive and gain the most out of each season life has for us. This conversation challenged us here at Mirotterance to take a close look at our own labels and evaluate whether they still served us or whether it was time to move on in order to live authentically. At Mirotterance, we want to create a community of storytellers. And so we welcome you to visit our website, check out our blog, leave a comment or send us a message. We would love to hear your thoughts on this conversation and would love even more to hear some of your story. Thank you again for joining us. And remember, everyone has a story. You just need to ask the right questions.